Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Welcome to All the Things, the show where we talk about all the things related to God, life, the Bible. That's right. Yes. And this is a show where we just like to chop it up with you every week, hang out as a family, and talk about the cultural issues of the day in light of the historic Christian worldview. Oh, I must have missed that part. <laughs> you know what, guys? If you're not friends with me on Facebook, my, my account is open. You it would, Do yourself a favor and go watch our blooper reel that I posted earlier today. Hey, I'm Monique Dusan. I'm Krista Bontrager. Okay. And you know what? I think this show is going to be fun tonight. I don't know. Helping right. us out on the show tonight this and is every night is the one and only Bob Montrager. There he is. <gasps> what? Who, who's, who's in the background there? Baby Yoda? Oh, oh no. <laughs> no, wait, wait. It's, we are live. And it is the one and only Miss Laura Hartley. That's right. She's here in town visiting, and she's one of our moderators tonight. And she will be helping on the conversation. And we are live, so please join the conversation on the live chat, especially on YouTube. That's the easiest way to get connected with us. And let's see who's checking in. Deanna's checking in. Joey. Hey, Deanna. Candy. Andre. Lisa Fox is our other moderator tonight. She's kind of newish to being a moderator, so we want to welcome her. Yes, everybody should give Lisa some love. Yes. That's right. Um. Hey, Mel, glad you're here. And Amanda, very good. Yeah, let us know you're watching and make sure to hit the thumbs up. That's the best way to support the show. Uh, click on the share button, make a comment and interact with the show because that helps to send out the, the bat signal to other people that, hey, there's a show. We have good content. All right. Well, and then um, we have Misty joining us on the CFBU Facebook page. Hello. Yes. And this show is brought to you by the Center for Biblical Unity. Whoop, whoop. Theology Mom. Podcast. Podcast. All right. <laughs> Gosh, can we just start over? <laughs> Family 210 Clothing. Yes. And Hey. Monique is wearing our shirt of the night. Yes, I am. You can I, wait, go hold on this way. Yeah, there you go. Go to family210.com. Life begins after the cross. That's right. Real life, true life begins after the cross. And about $10 of each uh, shirt sale goes to help our family, help the ministry. And we appreciate your support. So those are some ways that... You can help support the show to keep it coming. Because you know what? Doing the show is not free. You got that right. <laughs> there are expenses involved in the show. Yes, so yes. We do yes. appreciate your support. And if you're finding the content helpful, we just really want to encourage you to share this with your pastor, with a friend who might need this content. And a lot of people feel nervous about sharing content these days. Um because they don't want to get canceled, let's Publicly. be honest. But you can still put it in someone's DM. You can tell them in person, meet up with someone over coffee. You can share it that way. There's lots of ways to get share Get creative, it. folks. That's right. All right. So what's been happening with you? 
Uh, goodness. What I've been writing. I feel like I, I, there's a season of travel for both of us coming up. And so I've been writing a lot. Um, we went to Target today. It was exciting. <laughs> exciting and new. We, um, we took a field trip to the multicultural hair aisle. Yes, we did. It was <laughs> y'all. Y'all, my hair. Oh, my goodness. It's a prayer request. If you can remember my hair in prayer. Um, but then we jammed out to some 90s music. You At first, you started out with 70s and 80s music. And I was like, I don't understand this. What's going on? But um, except for, I think, Purple Rain from I, Prince. I was trying to play, like, name that tune. Yeah. And But when you put on that Janet Jackson, I said, oh, yeah, yeah. It was so good. Oh, we just, we love to have fun together. And that is why I am appreciative of you and our friendship and um, and our family. Like, because when we go on, we just, y'all, this is just us. And you get to be a part of us and we get to be a part of y'all. So That's right. we are grateful. All right. Now. Are you going to ask me what I've been up to? No, I wasn't. But okay, okay. I can. <laughs> What have you been up to? <laughs> Tell me. Uh, well, I've been, I did a um, live stream this week. Uh, did yes. part three of my series on biblical justice, working on part four. Uh, People a- are here for it too. Yes, they are. <laughs> they were like, what? A part four? <laughs> yes. I got a um, couple ideas for blog posts that I'm kind of trying to outline and and figure out. So I've been working on that and really trying to work on recruiting more volunteers. We have a lot of opportunities, but we can't necessarily capitalize on all the opportunities if we don't have help. So I want to encourage people, if you have skills in things like marketing, event planning, um, Digital communications, these are all skills that we need. So please go fill out the volunteer application at the Center for Biblical Unity. Yes. So, um, so I wanted to also spend a couple minutes here talking about the UP Conference. Yes. And we've got that coming in just a couple of weeks. It's really hard to believe. Um, what I, I think what would be good for us to talk about is who is this for? Who is it that you are trying to target with the UP conference? Humans. No. <laughs> We've no, had I all think... these conversations about marketing and target audience, and then she comes up with humans. All right, let's try again. I think with the UP conference, um, it's, it's a bit multifaceted because it's definitely targeted toward the Christian who is justice-minded, but it can also be targeted toward the person who has no idea where to begin with the conversation of justice, who is just wondering, hey, what is justice? How do I do it? What's the difference between social justice and biblical justice? And so in on one on one hand, um, it's for the Christian who is inquisitive, who doesn't really know much about justice. And then on the other hand, it's a tool for those who say, hey, I understand the word tells me to do justice. How do I dig in and do that? How do I look into my community and see where injustice is actually happening? So I think it's a bit twofold. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the more unfortunate parts of what I'm calling kind of the anti-critical race theory backlash is that we're so busy trying to People are so busy trying to put down critical race theory, they're not having the positive conversation 
of here's God's justice standards. Mm-hmm. Here's what we could really do to stand for justice. And so we don't want to set up this this idea of let's just talk about everything we're against. We want to also talk about what we're for. Yes. And so this is a critical piece of that conversation. I agree. I totally agree. I think when people are in conversations with their friends, you know, saying, hey, look, I understand that, you know, you think that this is actually the way to like equity. You think equity is the way to resolve all injustice or, you know, these these racial injustices. But actually look at scripture and look what scripture talks about. Yeah. This is how biblically we respond to injustice. All right. So. We have Neil Shindry. Now, I call him Cousin Neil because that's just deep in my heart. I feel like not only are we family, but truly he is Cousin Neil. He's been on our show um, two times before. He is he's a he's a chemist, but I want to say like a theoretical chemist. I don't know exactly the name. It's way above my pay grade. Like it's above my mental space. What he he does but he's also a homeschooling dad and a husband and all around kind of awesome. And so we have brought Neil on to talk about three books. We had him on, um, a gosh, year a year ago this month, now. Yeah. yeah. To talk about the new Canon books that were coming into like the social justice movement and really putting out how to, in, in some ways be righteous. What is the new righteousness um, or kind of like a new legalism? And so he he came on and he talked about that, but it's been a year. New books have come out. And so we are going to have him on to talk about three new books that have hit the market that people are asking us questions about. But we want to take a step back and ask Neil because he not only does he read all the books, but he reviews all the books. If you haven't checked out his book reviews, you should do so. Shinviapologetics.com. So let's bring on my cousin, Cousin Neil. Hey, Thank Dr. Shenby. Hey, guys. Monique. Chris, Hello. Doing? We're doing good. Hello. We're good. doing good. Last time you were on, you asked if you, you said you would never touch my hair, and I said I appreciated that. <laughs> I remember that, yes. Yes. <laughs> but still. you styled it now, right? Yes. I, I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> trying to do better. <laughs> but um, still, we won't touch it. <laughs> okay. Well, I, as Monique said, uh, your background is in science. Uh, you're a homeschool dad, but I'd love if we could just start off by what got you interested in reading primary sources about critical theory? Oh, man, about six years ago now, uh, I noticed this is my this is my sort of critical theory testimony. But about six uh-huh. years ago, I noticed this change, this drift in public figures, public Christians and in people I knew personally that had something to do with social justice. At the time, I was finishing my book on apologetics, looking for a new project. So I was like, I'm going to try to figure out what's going on. I was also listening to Jordan Peterson, not because I'm a huge fan. I just was curious why he was so popular. So I was listening to his lectures. And in one of his interviews, he mentioned a book called Race, Class, and Gender. And he quoted from that book. And the quote was so insane. I was like, I have to read this book. The quote was... um. The idea that objectivity is best reached only through rational thought is a Western and masculine idea that we will challenge throughout this book. That's the quote. Mm -hmm. And I thought that's so insane. I have to read the book. And so I did. And when I finished, I thought this is what I'm doing next. I'm going to read more about, because they were talking about critical race theory, queer theory, feminism, all these critical social theories. 
And that really was my opening into this whole world of critical social justice, critical race theory, et cetera. So I've been for the last, you know, I guess it's been, that was probably 2017. So, you know, for four years now, I've been reading all the things related to social justice and critical theory. And you take no uh, small amount of heat on Twitter. Uh, you know, people, I, I think your reviews are very helpful. Mm-hmm. You're self-taught. Uh, you always, when you're on podcasts, a lot of times I've noticed lately you give like qualifications of, yeah, I'm, I'm a, uh, I have a PhD, but it's not in critical social theory. You know, I'm a scientist. So you're kind of this, in, I look at you as being an informed outsider. You're an outsider to the, the discussion, but you've really done a lot of homework in reading first sources. Um, but you take a lot of heat for that on on um, Twitter, and you're pretty humorous about it. <laughs> you're okay with, with people kind of coming for you, but um, you also recognize, you know, that that's part of, that's part of the job right now, I think, for you, is that people are going to come for you a little bit because they're going to say you're not qualified to talk about these issues. Even though you're the smartest guy in the room. I'm like, <laughs> you guys know. We happen to Enron, though. Be careful saying that. Yeah. Uh, there. Well, on the other hand, though, I mean, I, so I totally agree. I never say that I'm an expert in this area because I reserve that term for people with you know relevant PhDs in this field. But that said... Uh, you know, I work closely with Dr. Pat Sawyer, who you, you, you've interviewed him too. Mm-hmm. And he does have a PhD in education and cultural studies. His research is in critical pedagogy. And so he's really guided my reading. And uh, we re- co-authored many articles together for things like the Gospel Coalition, um, ICON, the Christian Journal of Legal Studies. And, and so, you know, I, I don't mind people criticizing my work and saying it's wrong even, but I always ask them, well, what's wrong about what I've written? Where do I get things wrong? Where do I get my facts wrong? And their answer usually is you're a theoretical chemist. And I say, that's not really how reasoning works. You have to criticize more than my credentials or lack thereof. You have to look at what I've written and explain why it's true or false. And so uh, and so I, I don't mind criticism, but I really would... I'd urge people to read the sources themselves. And if they disagree with me to point out where and why they disagree, yeah. not merely to refer to, you know, credentials or resort to some kind of ad hominem. That's really helpful. And I, I think that we love having you on to talk about these books because one of the things that we notice that we're always trying to talk about is helping people understand the importance of reading these sources, even if they disagree with them, mm-hmm. even if they disagree with most everything in the book. Um, but maybe we should talk about that a minute. Why do you think that reading these first sources is important for Christians to do? And who should be reading these kinds of books? I think it's important because we want to represent the authors accurately. We want to not create a straw man it's sort of the golden rule of apologetics or even argumentation that do unto others what you'd want them to do to you. You want, you want to be treated accurately and fairly. You want to be represented accurately. So we should do that to other people, other authors. Um, that's number one, sort of an ethical mandate for a Christian scholar, for a Christian in general. But the other point that's often lost is that by familiarizing yourself with the primary literature, 
it gives you uh, not credibility, but it gives you uh, a lot of ammunition. So I will often get told that, oh, no one believes X. And I will say, quote, here's a quote from page 11 of Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist, where he says X. Yes. Word for word. In fact, you heard I just I memorized that quote from Anderson Collins, race, class, and gender, because I've used it so many times. So when you read primary sources, then you know where to look. And I can almost instantly provide direct quotes saying what that support what I'm saying. That's very helpful. You're not saying, well, so-and-so said that D'Angelo says that. No, I can quote the page number to you where she says it. That is extremely helpful and advantageous when you're in dialogue with someone who is skeptical that people really believe these ideas. Oh my gosh, that's so real. I find, and I don't know about you, but when I quote like primary sources, people get so upset. Yes, yes. Well, well, and I'm like, well, wait a minute. It wasn't me. Like, I'm just right. saying what they said. Yes. Now, tonight we're going to go over three books. Um, Jamar Tisby's How to Fight Racism, Jesus and John Wayne, and then God of the Oppressed by um, James Cone, who is the quote, quoted or, you know, father of um, black liberation theology. So we're going to jump right into How to Fight Racism by Jamar Tisby. It's a courageous Christianity and journey toward racial justice. And this is his mo more recent this is book his most, uh -huh. um, that we talked on the last show with Neil a year ago about the color of compromise mm -hmm. This one has come out now more recently. So I thought that's probably a good one. We did a book, a book yeah, club yeah, we just on did a book that. Club um, our friend Melissa Palou led a group of people through that book. Mm -hmm. And so I thought it'd be good to, to highlight that because yeah. he's Tisby is an Im important voice in, in the conversation. Super important um, voice in, um, in the Christian space. Yeah. And because he just partnered, well, it's not just anymore, but he mm -hmm. recently partnered with um, Ibram X. Kendi. Yeah. So let's kick off the questions with um, what is the big idea of this book? So I think the, the book is basically a how-to manual. I mean, the, the title is How to Fight Racism. And the chapters, not two through ten, are all how to explain race in the image of God how to explore your racial identity, how to study the history of race. So they're all how-to chapters. And so I would say the big idea is that we can pursue racial justice by following what he calls the ARC model, A-R-C, mm -hmm. which means awareness, relationships, and commitment. So the whole book is how to pursue racial justice by seeking awareness, relationships, and commitment. And then those three parts, they have three chapters each that show you how to do various elements of building awareness, relationship, and commitment. That's a big idea. So would you say that this is kind of Tisby expanding on the the last few chapters of The Color of Compromise? Now he's kind of unfolding his model for racial justice and unity. That's really what this, this book is about. Yeah, I think it's chapter 11 of uh, Color of Compromise is the sort of practical chapter on what you can do this is essentially an ex uh, you know a whole book length expansion of that chapter, and he gives a lot more details. And but but uh, it is it is really like he took that one chapter and made it much longer and more detailed and turned it into an entire book. Okay, now for those who may not be aware of who Jamar Tisby is, can you give us a bit of background of um, who he is, his credentials, expertise? Like why does he speak into this space? 
Sure. So he is a bachelor's from Notre Dame. He has an MDiv from Reformed Theological Seminary and a PhD. He just received his PhD in history from the University of Mississippi. So he's a professional historian. And as you said, he just started working for Ibram X. Kendi as the, I think it was the assistant director of advocacy and narrative for Ibram X. Kendi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now um, I know Kendi hasn't come out with any kind of faith statement, not that I've seen anyway, um, or, you know, testimony, but what is Tisby's like either faith journey or um, is he a Christian? Is he progressive? So he's, he's a Christian. He was a member of the PCA. He went to a you know, mm. Reformed Theological Seminary is a, is a Presbyterian seminary. And, uh, but I, I, I don't know whether he'd consider himself an evangelical anymore. He, he definitely was in the past. And I don't know if he belongs to the PCA any longer. I just don't know. I looked it up. I couldn't find any information on his church affiliation or his, his even his theology really um, today. But he's definitely a pressing Christian. Hmm. Okay. Oh, were you going to go ahead? Sorry, I was going to just gonna ask something else. No, I, I think that that's really a gracious way of saying it is, you know, I think a while back he was kind of a key voice in the reformed kind of racial reconciliation. Mm-hmm. There was a fa- Facebook group prior mm-hmm. to his, his, his current organization. He's over um, an organization called the witness, the witness. Mm-hmm. collective, I think is, is his, umbrella organization and his podcast is trying to think of the, I can't remember the name of his. Well, okay. So it's actually interesting. It's kind of maybe a little bit hints at his trajectory. So he founded an organization called that was originally called RAAN, the Reformed African-American network. And then a few years ago, it changed its name to the witness, a black Christian collective. So they dropped the reformed from their title. That might've just been, you know, for, I don't know, sounding more relevant. I don't know why. And, but they definitely now their vice president is decidedly not reformed. And probably, I don't know, like I said, Chisby was once, you know, professing evangelical Christian. I don't know if either of their current, uh, like their vice president or current president would, would espouse, would say that they're evangelicals. I, I suspect they would not. Their vice president is a pastor, uh, uh, Ali Henny. I believe she's oh. a pastor in the Episcopal church. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So what did you find helpful about Tisby's book, How to Fight Racism? Yeah, there are elements that are, that are true. Like, for example, he talks about how race is a social construct and that we need to understand human identity through the Imago Dei, right? We're all made in God's image from one man. God created all men. He actually, in the book, he explains the gospel in ways that would resonate with evangelicals. You know, he talks about how sin separates us from a holy God and Jesus came to rescue us from sin. So and it's like a one paragraph summary of the gospel, but it's definitely an evangelical summary. Um, he talks about how the end point of all this discussion is harmony, where unity in the midst of diversity prevails. It's page seven of the book. So again, he's, he's aiming towards harmony and unity with diversity. Um, he, when, he, when he talks about uh, how to understand how to separate good history from bad history. How do you, he urges you to read primary sources. That's excellent. And he says, when you do that, how do you decide what a source, which sources are reliable? And if they're secondary, obviously primary sources are primary sources for a reason. You're reading diaries, you're reading letters, you know, 
But when you're looking at secondary sources, how can you tell which ones are accurate? And he gives interesting advice. He says, beware of a history that includes clear heroes and villains. That's actually very perceptive, right? If you craft a story where there's one clearly good side is purely good and one side's purely evil, that's likely to be a, you know, because re reality is more complicated than that, right? There, as we know, as Christians, there are no really good people. We're all sinners. Uh, and so any history that spins one side as the heroic champions of justice is probably, or, or freedom or what is probably covering up some, you know, some skeletons in the closet. Um, and I personally, I would say, actually, the other thing you can do, which he doesn't mention, is read both sides. If you want to know whether a historian is treating his subject matter accurately, well, read a conservative historian, read a liberal historian, read a libertarian, read a foreign historian, read a, read a, a history of, say, the American Revolution written by, say, a person from France or from uh, Africa. So a completely different perspective on that subject. So anyway, so that's that's very good. Um he gives advice for making friends. He says one of the big uh, ways to bridge divides in the church is via relationships. That's actually excellent because one of the criticisms of evangelicals that you'll hear from anti-racist educators uh, and other scholars is that evangelicals think they can solve racism via friendship and by relationship because we're sort of relational in the church. And he says that's actually not wrong. We can help fight racism via friendship. So go make a, a friend who's a different race than you. So that's that's great. I'm like, yeah, who, who would uh, sponsor a school, he says. Uh, you know, I, 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 and who's going to say, no, we should not be sponsoring a school. We should not be caring for impoverished neighborhoods. Um, more practically, he talks about uh, criminal justice reform. Uh, he cites cash bail, for example, as a source of real injustice. And I haven't looked into that policy wise, but it seems he makes a good case that, you know, cash bail sort of unfairly advantages rich people. If you're rich, you get invested for a crime, you post bail. If you're poor, you can't. So you're stuck in jail. And he gives an example of a, a young man named Khalif Browder, who was accused of stealing a backpack. And they took, they arrested him on the, you know, on the understanding, oh, we'll release you soon. He spent a thousand days mm -hmm. in jail, two years in solitary confinement, only to have the prosecutor eventually just drop the case. Mm -hmm. And he was released, but it was shattered mentally and he ended up committing suicide. So just tragic story. Uh, and I'm like, that's something that we can all get behind and say, look, there are real injustices here that disproportionately affect uh, people of color. Mm -hmm. And so that he considers that a important racial justice issue. And I think we can all say, hey, let's absolutely work to make our laws uh, fair and just. Um, a few, two more. Um, one is that he says in the book that he's not seeking to pit the personal against the systemic. So racism in his in his description can be both interpersonal animus and bias and bigotry, or it can be systemic in nature. But he says we don't have to choose. You know, we can both attack personal bigotry and also systemic issues. And then finally, he just says that when you get really into the anti-racist movement, you can end up feeling superior to everyone else, these benighted people who are not woke like you. He says, don't give into that. He says, actually, his phrase is cancel contempt. Do not feel contempt or superiority towards other people just because you happen to be woke and they're not. Um, so I, and those are all positives of the book. And um, I think it's worth noting that there are positives in the book because I think 
overall, I would not recommend the book. But I think even in books you wouldn't recommend, you can still say, but there are elements of truth that we can say that this I can agree with. Well, I'm I'm glad that there were, you know, you, that you graciously pulled things out that were helpful. And, you know, I could agree with the things that you pulled out and saying, you know, this could be helpful. But you also said that overall you wouldn't recommend the book. So what are some of the concerns or criticisms that you would offer? Well, so my big concern is that his approach to um, to race and justice is grounded in critical race theory. Now, he anticipates that objection. He says, well, that's ahistoric because Blacks have been talking about racial oppression for centuries. And I would say, well, yes, but you know, the, the language he's using, just his whole framework, if you want to attribute it to critical race theory or uh, so, you know, the Black liberation movement or something, uh, it doesn't matter where it comes from. I'd say it's the wrong framework. Now, it, it, you'll see as I go through the, the, the examples of this, you'll see why I say that. Um, but in general, I would just say that that framework is just the wrong, it's false. It's, it's not true. It's not correspond to reality. But also for Christians, it, it conflicts with a lot of our ideas about racism and, and how we ought to view it, things like partiality, justice. Um, so that's a, sort of the background. Now, I'm not going to make it clear. I'm not simply saying he subscribes to these ideas that that correlate to critical race theory. Therefore, the book's garbage. I'm not saying that. I'm going to give specific criticisms. But my overall concern is to read this book and embrace it is to enter into a framework that is ultimately, I think, very harmful for the church. Hmm. But that said, I'm going to give you specifics. I'm not going to just ad hominem be like, well, he's doing critical race theory. It's yeah. garbage. Yeah. No, that's really helpful, Neil, because I think that a common misconception that I hear a lot of well-meaning Christians say is, well, critical race theory was brought about by Marxists and it's a godless mm -hmm. framework, so therefore we should disregard it. Well, that's actually not necessarily the best reason to disregard it. Rather, we look at the tenets of it and then we ask the question, does this correspond to the Christian worldview? Does this correspond to the Bible? Is this true or is this false? Does it correspond to reality? That's why we think of critical race theory as a framework as being potentially untrue, unbiblical, mm -hmm. potentially even dangerous. So I think that's a really good clarification. Yeah. So I'll go through the, the big, I mean, I'll give, I have several issues here. Um, one of the big ones is uh, either a lack of clarity uh, or, uh, or very broad definitions that he uses for terms that are very important. So, for example, the entire book's all about the journey towards racial justice. He does not one single time define the phrase racial justice in the book. He just does not give a definition at all. And I consulted with several other people who had the same frustration. They're like, well, you're talking about racial justice all the time, saying how it's so important that we're invested in racial justice, and yet he never defines what he means by it. So that's a that's pretty significant that he's using a very obviously justice is something Christians ought to pursue, but to use that term without explaining what he's what he means by it is concerning. It'd be like imagine writing a book about how Christians ought to strive for sexual justice, or uh, or gender justice, or reproductive justice, and never defining that. Well, you're using a morally loaded term that's going to draw people in, and yet never explaining what's entailed by that term. So that's in and of itself, that's already, you're like, that's not a good precedent. Now, 
in an interview later, a few months ago with Phil Vischer, the VeggieTales creator, he actually defi- did define in that interview, he defined racial justice as giving black people their due, which he's, you know, he's drawing on traditional understandings of justice as giving everyone their due. And he's saying racial justice is giving black people their due. And, he's, he, and he goes on to say that, well, black people have not received their due in this country. So it's now it's time for them to receive their due in this country. So, okay, that's a little bit of a definition, but right off the bat, a lot of terms you're going to see in what follows that they're either ambiguous or the way they're defined is, I think, concerning. So the second example I have is how he uses the terms equity versus equality. I'm just going to quote him at length here on the difference between equity and equality. So he says on page four, throughout this book, I often use the term equity rather than equality. Equality aims to promote fairness. This is only effective if all participants have similar starting points and the same access to resources for achieving their desired goals. Equity, on the other hand, demands that individual needs are taken into consideration. It accounts for identities, race, ethnicity, ability, nationality, gender, etc., and circumstances that may otherwise hinder the success of one participant over another. So you see he's explicitly contrasting equality with equity. This is a very common contrast that's you know brought in by critical race theorists and anti-racist educators because they would say treating everyone equally fairly is not really appropriate when the people involved are not equally situated socially so you know an obvious example would be uh, if i say okay i build a set of steps going up to the, my school right and it's equitable and someone says well, well my child is in a wheelchair that she can't use a, a, a stairs and i say hey equality she, you know, this guy can use the stairs. Your, your, your daughter can use the stairs. Everyone's equal. And well, in that case, you'd say, no, we should make special accommodations because she is in a wheelchair. We should build a ramp for her because the, the equal set of stairs, although there's form, formal equality, there's not equity because she, you're actually denying her access to the school because she can't get in. So that's, we all recognize that some degree of equity, meaning taking into account people's access is appropriate. The problem, though, is, well, when is it appropriate? He doesn't really ever address that. So, so, and you'll see, again, as we go on, you'll see how this all snowballs. Okay, so does that make sense how he's using equity and equality in a way that's going to, we're going to see is ends up being kind of problematic? You know, I think two of the, the, or one of the biggest problems that I see right now is like how that contrasts with scripture. You know, so when, when we look at justice biblically, it's not just about giving somebody their due. It's about unequal weights and measures, about Mm. treating people impartially. And when we look at equity and um, this idea of like, to use your example, access, well, you know, I think the, the fact that there's a disability creates a different scenario or situation. But what we're not doing, which a lot of um, in what I've read anyway, a lot of equity experts or people who advocate for equity want to do is take from the people who may have. So I can take the stairs, but now we're going to take something from the person who takes the stairs so that we can build a ramp for the person who may need a ramp. Mm -hmm. It's 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 a form of theft a lot of times. Yeah, in the case of, say, a handicap ramp, most people will say, okay, I don't mind if my taxes go to build a handicap ramp, right? I mean, that's kind of like, okay, there are some cases where sort of an equity mindset is legitimate. Yeah. If someone truly is, say, you know, physically handicapped, then, yeah, build the ramp so they can have access to the school. 
when it gets more tricky, there are other cases though, where you're like, wait, this doesn't really seem like you said it, it violates the principle of impartiality. Mm-hmm. So now here's an example. I'll, I'll give you next. The next thing he says on page five and the six, he says, um, to enact society-wide change, people must commit to deconstructing laws that have a disparate impact on people of different races and rewrite the rules so they lead to greater equity among people of all races and ethnicities. Now, what you see, this is really important. He's saying that we have to take into account disparate impact. And if laws are disparate impacting different racial groups, they should be rewritten. Again, you're like, well, when though? Because sometimes laws that are just will have disparate impact. For a really simple example, it's going to sound silly, but you know, uh, laws against something like arson, right? It, laws against arson are good and just. You shouldn't burn down buildings. But obviously, not every racial group commits arson at equal rates. I, and I don't even happen to know who commits it more. I just don't know. But the very fact that we have this law leads to more, say, Hispanics getting arrested for arson than Asians. We can't go from, oh, then we should dismantle the law. It's creating a lack of equity. Uh, No, you can't go from inequality of outcome, therefore we must rewrite the rules. But he never specifies which rules, what's the criterion for determining whether a rule is just or unjust. It's got to be more than just disparate impact, but he never goes beyond that. And is actually his new employer, Abraham X. Kennedy, explicitly says that every single law is racist if it leads to disparate impact and and, and lack of equity. And every law that leads to more equity is anti-racist. He is, I mean, I can give you quotes from Kendi. He's emphatic on that. And I, many people have pointed out that's insane. There are lots of laws that are good and just that lead to disparate outcomes. And you can't just dismantle all of those. I mean, private property laws, right? There's wealth disparity. How do you fix that disparity? Get rid of private property. Is, is that just? Well, no, that's really dangerous, in fact. Yeah, no, I was I was thinking about Kendi as you were talking. You know, um, you mentioned Dr. Pat Sawyer, who I call Uncle Dr. Pat, earlier uh, in a conversation with him about Kendi. One time I remember him telling me, you know, every inequity or every inequality is not an automatic injustice. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to be thinking about that when we look at inequities or, or inequalities, you know, do we see biblically that inequity is automatically an injustice? Right. So you see here again how these definitions are snowballing. He's not refining racial justice at all. When he defines equity and equality, he's immediately going to disparate impact and inequality of outcome, which we, which is obviously not a good proxy or a good, you know, for uh, injustice. We can't know that. Um, another example is he defines racism as a system of a system of oppression based on race that is a problem nationwide and worldwide. Everyone is either fighting racism or supporting it, whether actively or passively. This is again something very similar to what Kendi says in his book, "Had to Be an Anti-Racist." I was going to say that Kendi really has, has that exact, almost like echoes it, Kendi's ideas quite closely, like almost to the T in wording. The funny thing is that prior, you know, when I reviewed uh, Tisby's first book, I pointed out the similarities to sort of critical race theory's ideas and terminology. And I got a lot of people saying that's so unfair. How dare you? He's not a, he's not some support critical race theory, even though he says he finds it helpful in a podcast. And, and then here, when I wrote the review, I think he hadn't gone to work for Kendi yet, but of course I noticed the similarities in the language and, and sure enough, a few months later, he announces he's going to work for Kendi. So I, I'm just pointing out that 
I'm not just saying candy equals bad. I mean, candy he said he is are bad, but I'm not assuming. I'm just pointing out if you have if you candy is a radical. He says crazy stuff, and uh, and I can I, I've reviewed his books. I can point them out mm-hmm. to you. Um, that but the fact that Tisby is now working for him should show you that again. There's a trajectory these ideas have. Here's another example. So because Tisby defines racism as a system of oppression. If he says things like this, reverse racism is an erroneous concept because people of color may act in prejudicial ways against white people by judging them solely based on their skin color, but racism is more than an individual or interpersonal attitude. So he's using the racism as prejudice plus power, which again, you've heard a billion times from critical race theorists. So they'll say- And Eric Mason. Yeah, and lots of people have adopted as Christians, but the argument is that- uh, People of color can be prejudiced against whites, but they cannot be racist yes. because because uh, people of color don't have the institutional power. Mm-hmm. Ironically, Candy rejects that argument in his book and says, no, that argument is actually racist because you're denying people of color the idea that they have they don't have power, but they do have power. Even so, a small you, bit is what he says. Yes. So so I, my only point, though, is that as Christians, so forget about what, Again, Kenny's Kenny's right on that, by the way. But my point is, as Christians, what should we think about racism? And if you view racism as a form, a subspecies of the sin of partiality, well, sin does not depend on the power we have in order for us to commit it, because sin is ultimately against our creator. We sin primarily against a holy God. So if, if racism is a sin, then anyone can commit it regardless of their social location. So this whole idea that you know, blacks can't be racist, Asians can't be racist against whites because they don't. No, anyone can be racist because anyone can sin against the holy God. And what I would also say is that playing these semantic games is dangerous. You would not want to redefine the word adultery to apply only to men. You wouldn't, so, right? Because, or I know if you, if, you, if you commit infidelity as a woman, you're just cheating, but men have power, so they're committing adultery. Well, no, that gives you a false idea about who we are, human beings being made in God's image and therefore sinning against a holy God. Um, so again, that you're seeing now how this entire framework is really rooted in ideas that I, I would say are not compatible with a Christian, a proper Christian view of race. Um, let me, sorry, go ahead and I'll, I'll go faster. I'm kind of going slowly here. <laughs> That's okay. It's, you're laying a lot of good groundwork there. So, Okay. Let's just skip to some, uh, I'll just quote some stuff. And then I think you guys would maybe your eyes gonna go wide because I posted these quotes on Twitter and people are just shocked mm-hmm. at them. And I think rightly so. And you'll see why in a second. Let me just start with one. So the question, of course, is how pervasive is this racism? Because Kendi, I mean, Tisby repeatedly says it's, it's all over the place. It's pervasive, it's endemic to our culture. So for example, he says, white supremacy of which racism is a component constructs concentric circles with white people of European descent in the center, the place of privilege and importance, more financial wealth, and the presumption of innocence and normality. By the way, it's all lifted directly from the CRT literature. I can give you quotes. Um, And he says, outside of the central category are all other people of color, no matter how much black people attempt to assimilate by adjusting their patterns of speech, style of dress, and social networks. Listen, blackness in a white supremacist society can always be weaponized at any moment as a tool of dehumanization, no matter their level of achievement. People of African descent in the U.S., especially those with darker skin, 
are always situated in the outermost ring of American social circles. This is what a white-centered society looks like. Let me repeat that sentence again. No matter their level of achievement, people of African descent uh, in the U.S. are always situated in the outermost ring of American social circles. Now, coincidentally, a couple of weeks ago, President Barack Obama had his 60th birthday. It was a 500-guest party at his $12 million, 30-acre house on Martha's Vineyard. The guests included Jay-Z, Stevie Wonder, Tom Hanks, Oprah Winfrey, Charles Barkley, and Grant Hill. Is that what it looks like to be on the outermost ring of American social circle? I mean, that statement is just so mm -hmm. far removed from reality. Now, again, we're talking about Obama here. It's not like just any random guy, but it's just not true that all blacks are always situated in the outermost ring of American social circles. What do you tell me, Monique? Am I wrong? <laughs> right. I was trying to figure out, I, I don't know what I must be. If that's the outer ring, I'm, I'm far, far in a galaxy, far, far away. <laughs> like that's where I am. But I mean, you also look at Tisby and Kendi who are surely not, you know, trying to piece nickels together to make a meal. Like they are, if they're on the outer, can I get on that outer rung? <laughs> like, oh, and they're, you know, and they're being feted. I mean, Jack, mm -hmm. the Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter gave Kendi $2 million, I think for his anti-racist center. I mean, they're going on CNN interviews. They're, you know, meet, you know, so I'm thinking I, I'm, I, I can only imagine their social lives are pretty busy. Mm -hmm. So, so again, let me was quote. So I don't go on there. I'm just pointing out that statement is just not empirically true. Yeah. But let me quote someone for you that I think will be interesting. So, and here's a sort of a counterpoint to Tisby's claim here. Here's the quote: "The continuing assumption of universal marginalization across every era of African American history actually flattens the African American experience and contributes to the increasing irrelevance of black preaching." What do I mean? The experience of African-Americans in 1830, 1830 could be fairly characterized as near universal enslavement, oppression, and marginalization. Few would deny that. But how should we describe African-Americans in 1930? Mm -hmm. Moreover, the 1930s seemed like a lifetime ago for African-Americans born around 1980. The experience of 1980s generation African-Americans, like Tisby, by the way, roughly, is so different from previous generations that a burgeoning number of books dare to argue for a post-Black self-understanding. Listen to the last sentence here. Any monolithic understanding of Black experience crumbled long ago under the shifting weight of African-American progress and hard-earned victories. Now, that long passage, and there's more to it than that, comes from Fabidi Anyabwile in his book, Reviving the Black Church. So he's, you know, he's a prominent black evangelical reformed pastor. And he's saying, no, it's not true that all blacks are universally oppressed and sort of pushed to the margins of their social circles. Uh, that's that you're maybe in the 1830s. That was true. Maybe even the 1930s, but not today. Yeah. Um, so again, that's just a, so again, the framework, this idea that all blacks are suffering under the, you know, the oppression of, you know, white supremacy that's just not empirically true. Um, so we gotta keep going, Neil. Like, I know, I know, okay, I'll give you a few more quotes here. I'll just quote these things. Okay, I'll, you I'll, are I'll truly my cousin. <laughs> he says, this isn't black church. 
He says we have to learn theology from the disinherited. So he talks about mm -hmm. how uh, any reformation in the way people think about race and ethnicity from a Christian perspective must include learning from people who have experienced marginalization and oppression. Those include voices of those sometimes called liberation theologians. And he mentioned explicitly James Cohn, who we'll talk about hopefully later uh, tonight. Um, but he says we need to learn about race from James Cohn, people like James Cohn. He says this, white people must constantly cultivate humility in order to acknowledge their complicity in racism and engage in the process of repentance and repair. Racism is designed to be invisible to white people, just the way things are, or this is the right way to do things. So when they are confronted by the reality of racism, it could offend their sense of personal innocence. There is no way around this feeling. You have to go through a process of deconstructing the ways white supremacy has skewed your perception in order to see the reality of race more clearly. And then he says, finally, it is time for many of us to go home to the black church or other ethnic specific fellowships. The sad truth is that as long as there is racism in the white church, there will always be a need for churches that are comprised primarily of racial and ethnic minorities. It is not about segregating ourselves. It is about gaining the strength to persevere as a person of color in a society enthralled by white supremacy. And his, his former organization, The Witness, that he founded had a whole hashtag movement series called Leave Loud, where people shared their stories of leaving their white churches uh, or multi-ethnic churches even for the black church. And they were encouraging others to consider doing the same. So, you know, people long ago said, you know, this movement is gonna ultimately divide the church. And here we have Jamar Tisby saying, it's time to consider leaving your predominantly white church for the black church. So it's happening. Hmm. Sorry, I was just looking at um, a comment that that came in on Facebook before I'm going to say the comment before we go to the next book and get sure. your thoughts on it. Um, it's from Philip Hannum, and um, it's two parts. He says, I do not think you are hearing the argument. Tens of millions of Christians and Donald Trump argued that Barack Obama was literally not one of us. That was not legitimate um, to belong. And then the argument is not that black citizens can't function at the center, but that whiteness and um, I think it's at any time when pushed comes to shove, when push comes to shove, we'll take blackness and shove it right to the margin and try to take back our country. Right. So that first of all, that's not what he says, though. This is the thing. I know you can make an argument like something like that. Now, I don't think that's necessarily even true anyway. I mean, I, I don't deny there are people who believe that real Americans should be white or, you know, whatever. I, there are people that believe that. But he's saying something else. He, I'm going to quote it for you. No, and he actually, he mentions Barack Obama in the previous sentence. So he's, he's got them in mind when he says this. Because he says they faced racist insults, and they did. And he's saying that's an example of how no matter how high you climb, you'll always face racism. Now, and I believe that, right? You can face racism no matter if you're the, you know, king of England or the, you know, you can be really high up and still face all kinds of harassment. But he says something else. No matter level, their level of achievement, uh, people of African descent are always situated in the outermost ring of American social circles. I just... Is that statement true? You say, well, let's no, he's just exaggerating. Okay, fine, but he's exaggerating. But the point is the entire book is suffused with this idea that blacks are universally and homogeneously marginalized and that whiteness is centered and that 
but but I, again, we could have a long conversation about whether that's well, it's just not it's not I think accurate. That's very contextual. Uh, there there are undoubtedly circles, there are dirty places in the U.S. where you will be marginalized for being black or being Hispanic or being Asian. But there are other places where you will not be. For example, I mean, actually, Thabiti Anyabwile in his book gives the example of, um, of New York City during the Harlem Renaissance, when there was this thriving black, like entirely black community. It was artistic. And, and he's like, people in that community were not really day-to-day experiencing oppression or marginalization because they were living in this enclave of tremendous success. Mm. So again, and his point, Thabiti's point was that you can't universalize. And that was 1930. Think about what it looks like in 2021. So I'm just cautioning that that kind of hyperbole, if you don't want to call it hyperbole, that's it's inaccurate. And similarly, he makes these generalizations about how white people are all blinded by their privilege. We just saw that quoted, I quoted there. Uh, and these are, I think, dangerous generalizations to make because they're applied to, you know, essentially shape the way you think about race and shape the way you ultimately behave. Um, I think that's not correct. All right. right, Let's move on to Jesus and John Wayne, if you're okay with that. Sure. All right. So we're going to just recycle through the same questions is what is the big idea behind this book? Because we get a lot of people who write into the ministry um, wanting to know about this book. And I'm going to ask our moderators to go ahead and paste a, uh, a link to Neil's review of Jesus and John Wayne in the comments, but maybe let's just start off with what is the big idea? What is this author trying to talk about? So the big idea is white evangelicals commitment to militant patriarchy has corrupted their understanding of Christianity. And if you are skeptical, well, the subtitle is, I think we had on the screen, there's like how white evangelicals corrupted the faith and fractured the nation. So it's kind of, the subtitle is her big idea. Um, uh, so that's, that's the, what the book's about. Um, her credentials, she has a BA in history and German. She has a PhD in American history um, with specialties in women's history and religious history from Notre Dame. So those are, and she's a professor at Calvin College. Yeah, I was going to add that. I'm glad you said that at the end, that she's a professor at Calvin College um, and uh, actually, I just posted a video a couple of days ago on my public page, on my Theology Mom page, of a video of a bunch of Calvin College professors, and she's in that mix, mm-hmm. talking kind of about their point of view of how they teach the students. Before we go on, is yeah. Calvin College like a college that people shouldn't know? Because I've never heard of it. So oh. is it like, um, and I meant to ask you this the other day when you said it, but is it like a Christian school or a yeah, reform school? It's, okay. in, it's in Michigan. Historically, it comes out of the Christian Reformed Church. Okay. And, um, but it, I would characterize it as being fairly progressive. Just making sure Not we all Not saying understand. every professor who teaches yeah. there is progressive, but definitely I think that that's where, w- the way the school is leaning. And so this author is, is I would say, is among those voices. Awesome. And it's, it's a well-known evangelical school. It's like Wheaton or Biola, where it's one yeah. of the big, major Christian universities. I yeah. must be living under a rock. I've never heard of this place. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. It's okay. It's in Michigan. Thanks. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the author's point of view as, I mean, I don't know if she would even still characterize herself as evangelical, but how, how would you describe the author's point of view? Uh, she's definitely a professing Christian. She belongs to a small reform denomination. Uh, I don't remember the name of it, it's, but it's like the 
Christian Reformed Church. Maybe it's that, but but it's um, Paul Vanderclay, who's a pastor in California, belongs to it too. I know that. But it's a small. It was founded by like Swedish immigrants a long time ago. Um, so she's definitely a professing Christian uh, in a re- of the Reformed tradition and belongs to a Reformed denomination. Uh, but the, I think that denomination is having struggles still, you know, with progressivism within the denomination. It's sort of an ethnic sort of church. So it's a lot of sort of, I wouldn't say there's, it's culturally a Christian, but there is a culture to the church. And so they, theologically, they're still right, they're wrestling with commitments in terms of their theology. From what, I, from what I've heard from Paul Vanderclay, who's a pastor. Um, and, but she's, she definitely is, I don't, I don't know if she characterizes herself as an evangelical, but she is a Christian. Okay. So what did you think was helpful about the book? So she definitely touched a nerve in a, in a nerve, but she, she, people loved her book because there is a real issue. There are many issues that she's hitting on. Um, so for example, sexual abuse is a real problem in every church, in every denomination. Uh, a few years ago, the SBCA 2018, I think, had this big sexual abuse and cover-up scandal broken by the Houston Chronicle that led to a lot of like soul-searching among SBCers. Obviously, the Catholic Church has been dealing it for a long with a lot for a long time, uh, and, and, and all kinds of denominations have dealt with larger and smaller uh, sexual abuse and cover-ups. And, and, and by the way, churches aren't alone in that. That happens in schools. It happens in companies. It happens in Hollywood. So. I'm not singling out churches, but, you know, churches, obviously, we should have a higher standard for claiming to be born again, children of God, then yes, we should really care that there is sexual abuse going on and being covered up in the church. So that's a problem that she brings out. Um, You know, nationalism, militarism, whatever you want to call it, sort of like, you know, Jesus and John, I mean, the title of the book, Jesus and John Wayne, a sort of cultural uh, civic religion that sort of names Jesus, but kind of the Bible is kind of like a, a talisman almost, um, but it, but really it's the religion is more centered on being a good person, going to church on Sundays, and uh, in, in supporting your country and, and fighting the bad guys. That's a real thing. That's a, kind of a it's a little bit of a caricature. And yet here's a stat that she doesn't name this stat, but uh, I heard this stat from another guy who wrote the book. Um, uh, it's about um, Christian nationalism. Ah, oh, what's it called? Taking America Back for God by Whitehead and Perry. They're sociologists at Baylor. And that's a different book. I, I can talk about that later. But he shared a stat on Twitter from his surveys. And it said, this is a shocking to me. 68.4% of white born again or evangelical Christians affirmed that this statement. Here's what they've affirmed. 68.4% affirmed this statement. I consider founding documents like the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution to be divinely inspired. 68.4% of born again, white born again or evangelical Christians affirmed that the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution are divinely inspired. That's crazy. Right? Uh, that's completely, I wouldn't say it's heresy, but it's really bad. It's terrible theology. So you at 68% people, you can't just shrug that off. Like that's not a few handful of wackos out there. That's a lot of people. And these are not just anybody. These are professing born again, evangelical Christians. So there is a subset, maybe a large set of people that are, have some really wrong ideas about how sort of the nation of the United States, America is connected to Christianity and how they relate to God's kingdom. Cause you know, guys, the constitution, 
ain't inspired. <laughs> the Bible is constitution. They're good documents. I appreciate them. They're not God's word. Um, so that's another issue that she brings up. And, that, and she doesn't mention that data, that, that number, but that, that, that sort of that movement, if you want to call it that, that demographic group, if you want to call it that, uh, she's targeting that kind of idea, this conflation of America, John Wayne, the military, and Christianity. They're all mixed together in a pot. Um, that really does seem to exist. Okay, the third problem, there are these really weird, gimmicky, masculinity things going on in churches. They're just, they're weird. So to give an example, I'll read a quote from her book. There's something called Godmen, which is like a ministry in some church, I guess. Godmen participants watched video-style clips of karate fights, car chases, and jackass-style stunts, offered prayers of thanks to God for their testosterone, and raised their voices in a manly mm. anthems like Grow a Pair. Wow. And I looked up the lyrics to this hymn, Grow a Pair. It says, we've been beaten down, feminized by the culture crowd. No more a nice guy, timid and ashamed. Grab a sword, don't be scared. Be a man, grow a pair. Wow. So, you know, I'm like, guys, that's cringe. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not just, it's borderline blasphemous. I mean, come on. Like, I, I mean, they're probably doing this like outside of corporate worship, but it just, it's just, it's not, man, I would be like, that's, sorry guys, you, you're not cool. It's like, it's like Dr. Evil doing like the Macarena, like, or like the, remember the, was that, was that movie where um, Steve Buscemi has like the, the, he's like, what's up fellow kids? He's like 50 year old guy trying to fit in with teenagers. Seen that where he says like, it's, it's, his shirt says rock band. Anyway. <laughs> It just smacks of people trying to be, trying too hard to be cool. Anyway, for my taste. But she points out that kind of stuff, and I'm like, that's not, no. That's not sort of a biblical vision for manhood is talking about your testicles all the time. You know, that, that's just, that's creepy. And then, you know, there are other scandals involving, uh, you know, the 80s televangelists like Jim Baker, Jimmy Swaggart, who were, you know, uh, accused of and found out to have you know, had affairs and even committed a rape maybe. Uh, and then modern figures like Mark Driscoll and James McDonald, Darren Patrick, uh, who tragically committed suicide later. Uh, but there have been scandals involving like really immoral behavior, bullying, various forms of abuse, just, just basically being a tremendous jerk. <laughs> uh, but to the extent that they were, you know, at left, at the, they were forced out of their churches and put under church discipline. That's a problem. I mean, that's, that's in the Bible, right? Like, you know, elders are held to certain standards of, of compassion they shouldn't be quarrelsome. They're supposed to be of good repute in the community. And so their examples are very high, powerful profile, high profile, powerful pastors who have just totally, you know, sinned in grievous ways and had to be kicked out of their churches. So again, yeah. those are all real problems. So I think what I hear you saying in that is what the author is highlighting that seems helpful potentially is that there can be kind of this destructive form of masculinity and mm. that it's not a type of masculinity that actually seems biblical, but it tries to fly under the banner of being biblical and actually is kind of bullying, sometimes abusive. And that there's, it's also highlighting this conflation that happens at times between patriotism and 
Christianity. And, 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 you know, our country, albeit has a complicated relationship with Christianity. And I did an extensive teaching series on that back in January and understanding, you know, the, the multiple influences on our founding documents, Christianity, broadly speaking, in a principled form was one of those key influences on our founding documents. But there are other philosophical influences that influenced our founding documents. But the question itself is curious to me in the survey question about, you know, our founding documents being potentially inspired. It, it, I would be curious to look at that data and if any definition of the word inspired was offered, because some people would say Shakespeare is inspired but they wouldn't equate it with the Bible level of what we need mean technically of the theological term inspiration. So that's a little bit confusing. Well, but, it's a, the yeah. question was divinely inspired. You're kind of like, mm. I mean, you have to really squint to be like, oh, they made a mistake. They didn't like, yeah. like you know, like any good books inspired. Like, <laughs> I'm not going to call anything about the Bible divinely inspired. So, yeah. and, if, and if if you do, you really don't understand what we mean when we talk about the Bible being divinely inspired. It's mm. just right. Like, yeah. So, so let's talk a little bit about some of your concerns and some of the criticisms that you have of the book. The big one, this is actually going to come up. This came up, it's comes up a little bit uh, with a lot of these sort of, very modern, like in the last few years, a lot of Christian scholars, historians, sociologists have come out with the books that make the same mistake. Um, and they have in the past too, but I've seen, I'm seeing a lot of books come out in the last few years that are doing this. The problem is what they, they do is they take the tools of history or sociology or, uh, or psychology or, or, or cultural studies, and they examine some cultural phenomenon. And then they go from examining that, that phenomenon and building some and making some historical or sociological case to then leaping to normative claims, leaping to claims about how we ought to behave or what we ought to believe as Christians based on history or sociology or psychology or something. And the point is that's completely a terrible way to do theology. Uh, for, so, so because why? Because these books never touch scripture. They never appeal to what scripture says to support those normative claims. So for example, the subtitle of her book is how, uh, what is it? How American, oh, sorry, well, I don't have it up here. What's, what's the, Can you put the graphic back up? The graphic again. I don't get it wrong. How white evangelicals, it's how white, yeah. How white evangelicals corrupted a faith and a fractured nation. Now think about that. That is sort of her central thesis. Subtitle of her book, and it's all through the book, you know, is that White evangelicals corrupted a faith, Christianity. Here's the question. How can you tell that something is corrupted? Well, they don't get it. They get it wrong. They alter it to, to go from what it truly is to, to twisting it and making it not what it ought to be, right? Well, where in the book does she explain what Christianity ought to be? What is the uncorrupted form of Christianity? What is the proper biblical way to think about gender? What are scripture's views on gender roles? She doesn't offer a single verse, nothing, not even any dot, nothing. She doesn't talk about theology whatsoever. And yet she's making this entire book, uh, extended argument for saying that these views that all these various theologians have are wrong and false, that we ought to reject them. That's a really dangerous way of thinking about anything doctrinal, because if you don't appeal to the Bible, well, then where's your doctrine coming from? 
and then implicitly from history, from sociology, from psychology. But she, again, so in my review of the book, I say I almost wish this book had been written by, uh, you know, a feminist theologian. And I say, well, why? Because then she'd be open about saying, I reject what the Bible says about gender, or, or the Bible actually says this about gender, making some case from the Bible. But this book is written as a historian, but she sort of just doesn't even bother to engage the Bible at all. So that's the, right off the bat, I have to ask, is that how we're going to do theology? In any field, we have to do theology starting with scripture. And if we don't insist on that, then we're going to be just allow it's going to be very dangerous, let me put it mildly. And this is sort of what the Reformation was about. Like, is our doctrine going to be grounded, explicitly grounded, overtly grounded, transparently grounded in scripture? So yeah, that's, a, that's a major concern I had. Um, well, I think that's a really important concern because one of the things that we're frequently, we frequently say on the show is the importance of having kind of a, a creation identity. And part of our creation identity is being male and female and understanding that there's differences between men and women. And mm -hmm. when we look in the New Testament, we see the precedent for eldership, you know, being men. And so we're, we don't want to exchange the idea of these abusive excesses in some evangelical spaces with, well, now we're going to just collapse all differences between men and women. And that can become very confusing. But if, if her position isn't clarified, it's like, okay, well, you're knocking this, this excess, this abusive framework down, but, but what is the healthy alternative? That's kind of what I hear you saying. Well, no, no, it's, it's that, I'll get that later, but the main, the real point I'm making here is that if she's making a claim about how evangelicals have corrupted Christianity, then she has to start by saying, according to scripture, here's what pure Christianity looks like, or here's what real biblical gender roles look like. She has to make something, and here are the verses that support that, but there's nothing like that. And so right off the bat, we have to say, if you're making a theological claim, then you have to transparently ground it in, here's the scripture verses, and you have to and ideally engage other people's arguments. So, well, they say this, but they're wrong about this. But her book is a book of history. And that, and she, I guess, views that as sufficient to convince us that that we ought to abandon these these ideas. But you have to. Well, she's never invoked scripture. So again, that's the, my central point here is: if you're going to make a theological claim of any kind, you must exegete scripture. You must appeal to doctrine. You must say something about the Bible, or even at least you can appeal to like tradition or to some. But she just literally goes through history. And then it's supposed to convince us that, that these gender roles or complementarianism, we'll get that in a second, but they're somehow wrong. But again, she's never explained why. She's never looked at a single text of scripture. I think there's literally not one text of scripture in the entire book, not one. Wow. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a problem. Um, a second, okay, so that's, that's again, that's a, but that's a huge concern. That's, that's enough for me to say a book that makes normative claims, like you ought to believe X, and then the argument is purely historical. It doesn't say anything about what the Bible says. Right off the bat, as a Christian, I have to say, I cannot, I can read it as history, but I cannot accept its normative claims because I have to see where, where the, what the Bible says. Second, even as a work of history, uh, she, her, you know, her thesis is that um, evangelicals, white evangelicals 
have corrupted a faith and fractured a nation, right? Here's the problem. Her book, all the history in her book begins around 1900, 1900. I think she might've, I think she, at one point she mentioned Abraham Kuyper, who was a prime minister and he took office in 1901, I think, but he mm-hmm. lived before that. But basically for her, I think she starts, the earliest era she begins with is post-Victorian Christians. So you're thinking like, you know, late, late 19th century Christians. And then she kind of jumped right from there to like 1900s. Now, here's the thing. If you're going to show that evangelicals you know, corrupted Christianity through their, by their faulty views on gender. You can't start history at 1900. You have to say, okay, well, what was Christianity like in 1800, 1700? What were their views on gender in the early church, in the medieval period, in the Reformation period? But she says none of that. She goes and starts with 1900 and then says, look how gender roles have, you know, been shaped by evangelical thought or how they've changed over the last hundred years. But if she actually, here's, uh, here's, I think, why she doesn't do that. If you go back and say, well, what did Christians believe in 1800 or 1700 or 1600 or, or 300? What you'll find is that actually their views on gender were far more conservative than the average evangelical today. So she's trying to argue that, well, see, you know, evangelicals corrupted the a biblical view of gender, you know, in the 20th century. But actually, if you look at actual history, the real story is that, that the 20th century saw a complete revision of traditional gender roles with a few holdouts within evangelicalism. So the actual narrative of history is the exact opposite. It's not that evangelicals sort of snatched these progressive gender roles and enforced these sort of handmaid's tale, dystopian, you know, traditional. No, it's that Actually, the entire world, uh, you know, graft, grappled, you know, adopted these very modern ideas about gender, and there were a few holdouts among evangelical Christians and and Catholics and and other you know and Muslims and things. So, and I'm just pointing out as history, her claim doesn't work, and and she because she starts to, like it's very anachronistic. She's assuming that, I mean, implicitly that all of history is actually was progressive until evangelicals ruined it when actually it's the opposite. I mean, not, not ruined it. I'm just pointing out that she has to say something about the fact that Augustine, Aquinas, Calvin, Luther, the entire Catholic church, the entire Orthodox church, basically all of Christian tradition until around like 1800, 1900, 1960 even, was basically what she would consider patriarchal. And then in 1960, things changed and we got a pro- more progressive views on gender. Now, I'm not even saying what's right or wrong. Maybe maybe the progressives are right. Maybe maybe all of Christian history was wrong. But if you're making a historical argument, you have to include the fact that actually everything changed during the sexual revolution in the 1950s and 60s in in America. So I guess that's a pretty big concern that she's not even mentioning any of these historical figures. I don't have a follow-up to that. Okay, sorry. Normally, no. you, you like the follow-up. No, 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 I'm All just right. listening. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to quickly go to God of the Oppressed because we cannot leave out James Cone. Okay, yeah. all just, right, all right. We cannot. more, though. All right. Um, I actually haven't read this one. I, I did read... Um, You've read parts of it, haven't you? Just, yeah, I haven't, like, read it all the way through, but I did read um, Black Liberation Theology. That's so, one. Okay, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. but, um, yes. We should probably do a little setup here about why James Cone 
is important, you know, in the conversation because we've talked historically on the show about a lot of critical social theory voices, but James Cone is kind of in a little bit different stream. Yeah, I would say, and Neil, you can let me know what you, know, what you think, cousin. Um, I wouldn't call him necessarily a critical social theorist or a critical race theorist. He definitely predates that. But yeah. I do think that his voice lends into or bleeds into critical legal studies and critical race theory. Like you can hear that. And even um, in the current cultural narrative that's happening in some black American circles, I think it is twinged with, you know, some critical race theory and black liberation theology because black liberation theology was kind of just word on the street. I I mean, if I were to, and I would love to study this at some point to see how much black liberation theology actually goes into some of the critical social theories, like um, critical race theory, because to me, black liberation theology and that message has been since I was a child, just part of the culture. And so when when people say, well, I don't even know about critical race theory, I, now I'm being accused of critical race theory, I can say, you know what, I actually believe that because I think so much of the overlap of black liberation theology is what's actually in the conversation. So I think Cone is a really um, important person to discuss in this time. What do you, what say you? He, he is, and the connection between Cone and critical race theory is really rich Um, And CRTs will openly admit that they have drawn on black radical thought, which, you know, Cone would be in that stream, certainly. Yeah. And and so I don't know if they borrowed from, they don't borrow from Cone, presumably, directly, um, but they're borrowing from that whole stream of thought in in their own thinking. So that's one connection. The other connection, I'm going to get in trouble for this, but it's right there in this book, is Karl Marx. A lot of these ideas do have their, not their full form, but their, their nascent form is right there in Karl Marx's writings and Cohn cites him repeatedly in this book. Mm-hmm. And it's not, by the way, it's not about economics at all. He, he, Marx's ideas about uh, ideology and truth and truth claims and uh, all that is what Cohn cites him for, not his theories about economy, economics and money. So uh, let's so, talk, let's talk about the big idea of the book. What is the God of the oppressed and kind of the big idea of black liberation theology? So the big idea of God of the Oppressed is that our theology uh, needs to, and all of our beliefs about the Bible, about God, about Jesus, about the gospel, have to be understood through the lens of the Black liberation movement, the movement, the Black freedom struggle, he would say. And that, that that's the starting point for all our thinking about God, all our hermeneutics, how we understand the Bible, is we start with the Black experience and then read the Bible in light of that Black experience. And I'm going to, again, I'm going to just read to you direct quote. So this is from the, this is actually interesting. This is from the preface to the 1977 edition of God of the Oppressed, the preface. And he says that there are two issues that he has changed on with regard to his theology, but they should be understood. He said they're best understood in relation to continuity with my earlier work. So he's saying that, okay, I've, I've shifted my views, but they're in continuity with my earlier work. They're not contrasts. So listen to these statements by Cohn in 1997. This is 22 years after God of the Oppressed, but this is in the preface, the 1997 edition. He says this, I still regard the Bible as an important source of my theological reflections, but not my starting point. The Black experience and the Bible together in dialectical tension serve as my point of departure today and yesterday. The order is significant. 
I am black first. Let's emphasis on the black. He's in italics. I am black first and everything else comes after that. This means I read the Bible through the lens of a black tradition of struggle and not as the objective word of God. The Bible, therefore, is one witness to God's empowering presence in human affairs, along with other important testimonies. The other testimonies include sacred documents of the African-American experience, such as the speeches of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr., the writings of Zora Neale Hurston and Toni Morrison, the music of the blues, jazz, and rap. The liberating stories, myths, and legend are also found among men and women of all races and cultures struggling to realize the divine intention of their lives. I believe that the Bible is a liberating word for many people, but not the only word of liberation. God speaks not just one word in only one story, but many liberating words in many sacred stories. It's all a direct quote, guys. Mm-hmm. I'm not interpreting that. <laughs> it's pretty wow. clear. Wow, so it, it does sound like he's saying that the Bible is one story of liberation. And I know that often liberation theologians like to kind of camp out on the Exodus story in particular as being particularly formative and foundational, but that he's comparing that also side by side almost with Toni Morrison and Malcolm X and, and even the, the writings of jazz authors that those, those are all kind of um, on the same plane. Yep. Okay. That's your understanding as well. That's my understanding as well. No, no, yeah. And then that's that. So that the sort of the, more the pluralism is kind of a little bit new, but his earlier work that like got to the oppressed, he clearly said he starts with the black experience, then reads the Bible through the black mm-hmm. experience and, and makes it like he interprets the Bible insofar as it's all about the black experience. When, and we'll see more of that. If we get into the book. He actually has a, he has a, um, a lecture that he did at Duke university. I want to say in 2015, where he goes into this exact thing about understanding the black experience, then you read the word of God through the black experience to understand what's happening. Monique's been binge, Monique's been binge watching James Cone okay. on YouTube. Well, and that's also why white people cannot understand the Bible. He'll, he says that explicitly yes, because clearly. they don't have the black experience, which is a requisite to understand the Bible and their white supremacist thinking, their, their ideology in a, in a bad sense, their whiteness basically is not the right framework to allow them to allow them to even see or understand the Bible. Mm-hmm. And if they want to understand the Bible at all, they have to, in his words, become black. They yes. have to, you know, and it's, uh, we'll have some quotes here, but I think I'm exaggerating, but he, <laughs> we'll see. Okay, one more quote from the preface. Um, Since 1975, a radical development has taken place in my Christological reflections. No longer can I do theology as if Jesus is God's sole revelation. Rather, he is an important revelatory event among many. God speaks to many people through many uh, through many persons and events in a variety of ways. While I find it meaningful to speak of Jesus as God's black Christ, who empowers African-Americans in their fight against white supremacy, I cannot limit God's revelation to Jesus or to the fight against white racism. Um, so again, he, he sort of, is, Jesus is no longer the center of, you know, his sort of religion or I mean, his, but he's like, it's not, well, he's a, he's a, his, his, his view of theology is not centered on Jesus anymore. He's one among many ways that we can sort of find liberation. Um, he's, God speaks in many different ways through many persons, not just Jesus. And again, he's saying that's that's new. That he used to view Jesus like his guy, but now he's like, no, no, it's not just Jesus. Okay, so um, 
that's all direct quotes, guys. So I, I, I can say some more, but I almost want to just let Cone speak for himself. I, yeah, Cone, Cone is a whole meme. Like, he's a vibe. Like, you can just let him be. And he you can't really, to me, you can't really um, argue against him because he's so clear in his writings. And especially as you listen to him, you can put get on YouTube. You can't really say, well, what he really meant to say was this because he's so direct and he's so um bold in his claims like um and you know i'm for, it might be in um god of the oppressed but it may also be in um a black liberation theology where he says like white people shouldn't speak and they should be treated like babies like and, children yes yep yep yeah but and then he goes in to defend why he's saying this and so it's like you can't be like well he didn't really mean it like that no because he tells you i mean it like that and this is why i mean it like that so there's so, a there's a question here on YouTube that maybe we can answer really quick is does the black experience as Cone is defining it include non-American blacks? Candy's asking she's originally from Jamaica and she lives in Canada now. You know, actually, I don't know. I, I can't think of any place that Cone addresses that directly. Um, I just have to say, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't read the book looking for that discussion. So I, I I could tell you what critical race theorists say, but I couldn't tell you what Kuhn says. Uh, I think um, in some of his lectures that I've listened to um, on YouTube, he he hones in on the Black American experience. Um, and I haven't seen him, and I could be wrong, I'm not an expert in Kuhn. I haven't seen him too often bring in like, all of the, you know, any person that bears more melanin or black skin, he has once in a while. So I kind of feel like it could go either way. Um, but I agree with you. Like, I feel like in, in black liberation theology, I didn't see him, you know, being all inclusive. So what I would say that you're, you're saying, well, you know, Cohn's so clear. Well, Monique, I got news for you. Sadly, I got dragged on Twitter last year because, uh, Danny Aiken, who's the president of Southeastern Seminary, posted an article that I'd written saying, he's saying, I'm, I don't, I, you know, I don't, I reject Cohn's thinking. It's very dangerous. And here's why. And he posted my article. Well, the article was literally a collection of direct quotes from, with no commentary from Cohn's Black Theology of Liberation. It was just quotes, nothing else. And they're so outrageously crazy that you read them, you're like, this is going to, and on Twitter, I was told repeatedly, how dare you? How, how could you? I'm like, how dare I what? As he said that. It's, I didn't say that. They're like, you take it out of context. I'm like, it's 2,000 words long. Like, how did I find 2,000 words of quotes that look this crazy in like a 200? I mean, it's, it's like a, it was like 5% like of the book or something. It's some huge fraction of the book. And people would not believe. They're like, it's, it's got to be at a, It's got to be cherry picked. How can you cherry pick that much material? Yeah. So, Unfortunately, people just really want to believe that he didn't mean this stuff. But anyway, so here's a quote. This is great. Let me just read. I'll, I'll just look. Here you go. I'm just going to read some quotes from Cohen to back up what I said about um, about uh, his ideas about um, whiteness, for example. So like story hour with cousin. Go ahead. Story hour. So remember I said, he, you know, he, according to Cohen, whites can't really understand the gospel or the Bible because they're in the wrong you know, framework mentally. They're thinking in terms of whiteness. Okay, listen to what he says. Because the values of white culture are antithetical to biblical revelation, it is impossible to be white, culturally speaking, and also think biblically. 
Biblical thinking is liberated thought, i.e. thinking that is not entrapped by social categories of the dominant culture. If white theologians are to understand this thought process, they must undergo a conversion wherein they are given by the Holy Spirit a new way of thinking and acting in the world. Defined and limited by God's work to liberate the oppressed, to think biblically is to think in light of the liberating interest of the oppressed. Any other starting point is a contradiction of the social a priori of scripture. So as you start in the a priori, you start with the social context of black liberation movement of black people in America. And then you can understand scripture. If you start any other location, you cannot understand scripture. Um, I, guess, I mean, is that as clear? He's very clear about that. And then, uh, yeah, you said in black theology liberation, he talks about how, you know, to, if it, here, they, here, you know, it's here, it's here, it's here, it's here. When whites, the how he said, wait a minute, can whites become, you know, can they get, get woke and become aware of the Bible and what it really means? So, well, he says that, he deals with that. He says, when whites undergo the true experience of conversion, wherein they die to whiteness. Well, that's my, this is my favorite one. This Go is ahead. your one. This is yours. <laughs> yes. And are reborn, I'm going to read the whole thing, and are reborn in order to struggle against white oppression and for the liberation of the oppressed. There's a place for them in the black struggle of freedom, but it must be made absolutely clear that it is the black community that decides both the authenticity of white conversion and also the part these converts will play in the black struggle for freedom. The converts can have nothing to say about the validity of their conversion experience or what is best for the community or their place in it, except as permitted by the oppressed community. White converts, if there are any, if there are, if there are any to be found, if. must be made, be made to realize that they are like babies who have barely learned to walk and talk. They must be told when to speak and what to say, otherwise they will be excluded from our struggle. <laughs> Now, you know, spin that, spin, and what is he saying there? I mean, I just, it just See, what you really don't understand about Cone is he wasn't saying, yes, he did. He said it. <laughs> so, and again, so I, I know we're running out of time. I'll just point out that a lot of these ideas he's getting from Marx. And you know, so CRT, it's not Marxism. It's drawing on Marxist thought. And so is Cone. That's why you see so much similarity in some of these ideas. So Cone, when Cone talks about um, how uh, he says, you know, he quotes Marx and says that basically our ideas uh, about God are just expressions of our social location, right? That's basically Marx's idea upside down that our you know, material conditions produce certain ideas. Well, Cone, so Cone's idea is that our social location produces theology, just sort of like <laughs> almost almost deterministically. And so you you know because whites are in in the, in the oppressor social location, they produce thoughts about God that are false. Um, and then in order for them to not do that, they have to become black. So um, and anyway, he, he cites Marx for those ideas, and that's again those are very uh, have those are used a lot today in critical social theories. So when we think about Cone, I think that what's really helpful that you're clarifying there is that we're not imagining it, that we see some similarities in thought because there's, there's kind of drawing on a common stream of aspects of Marxist thought. Um, so when we see that played out in black liberation theology and eventually in critical race theory, there's, there's that they can kind of draw that back in the intellectual family tree, if you will. 
Yes, and I got. I'll give you one more <clears throat> one more Easter egg here. Okay. So to and okay. So in the preface to, I think it was to his book uh, for my people. I'm not sure about that, but the preface of for my people, I believe, the preface was written by Paolo Frieri. Frieri is the father of critical pedagogy, and he had not heard of Cohn, but someone gave him Cohn's, I think, Black Theology Liberation. He's from Brazil. When Frieri read Cohn's book, Frieri immediately said, this is exactly right. It's exactly what I'm doing, and went and met Cohn, or maybe he's already at Harvard at the time, but the point is they met, and Frieri immediately recognized like you know a brother in the struggle and wrote the preface for one of his books. And Frieri was in the, totally independently engaged in critical pedagogy and really is the father of that discipline. Well, maybe it's zero, but the point is, so it's not just Neil Shenvey. It's like even the critical social theorists themselves recognize that, yes, Cohn is exactly saying what we're saying in a theological context. Um, now, I actually, a number of people have asked me about, like, what they should study. They're like, I want to do a dissertation on this stuff. I'm like, man, there is a master's dissertation, maybe even a PhD dissertation waiting for you. You can like dive into the connection between James Cohn and critical social theories. Because again, Freery wrote the preface, man. It's there's a paper trail somewhere. I'd love to get like some letters between the two of them, like talking about their ideas, but it, we're not imagining that connection. I'm wondering, Neil, about maybe we should talk for a minute about the influences that gave rise to Cohn's project. Because I think that Cohn comes about when he starts writing in the late 60s and 70s, you know, what the world is like and what some of those struggles were and what went into his development of essentially a new type of theology, of this black liberation theology framework. Now, he only died just a few years ago. 2016, if I'm not mistaken. But he... He continued to develop this idea, and I think it would be helpful to put Cohn into his historical context a little bit, into what was he writing and responding to. I think that's a good point. So remember, you know, Cohn's, I think his first book came out in 69, and then the next one is 70. I think Black Theology Liberation was 1970. Then God of the Oppressed was 75. So he's writing, yeah, late 60s, early 70s. And he grew up, I think, in like rural Arkansas, mm -hmm. I believe. But he grew up in like some small town in the South. And so that's important because he was writing his childhood, his early adulthood, and his context was shaped by really awful, blatant racism. Um, and certainly his childhood. I think he just talked about it in his books. And then he's writing at a time when there were like, there were race riots. There were, I mean, and there were like, in 1963 was the, when the Klan bombed the Birmingham church, like the 16th street Baptist church bombing killed four little girls. Right. And there were things like that happening. And so we have to understand that in his, in his writing, you see a ton of anger and rage and it's, I'm not saying it's right or good. I'm saying some of it is understandable. So when he labels all white people as racist and they can, they can't even understand the gospel. They're all, you know, that's not true. And yet you can see that hit, you know, the society he's living in certainly influenced why he went there. So again, I'm not excusing it. We shouldn't excuse him. We can try to understand sin. I'm saying why he felt that way. Um, so that's a good, it helps you to, to realize that 
it's not like he just out of the blue <laughs> said these crazy things. He was shaped by a culture and by a childhood that would probably faced a lot of real racism and blatant racism. And uh, anyway, so that's the thing. So actually, when was he born, Monique? Do you know? Because I guess if he was writing in 70, he's probably 25. So he was probably born in like 45, maybe, or maybe before that. I was thinking 39, but I could be. Yeah, mistaken. I was thinking in the, the mid to late 30s. So you know, think about that. So think about so he's, you know, he's like 20 years old growing up in the Jim Crow South. In teenage, as a teenager. So my only point is that, again, you can get why he is, you know, anyone growing up in that context is probably suspicious of white people at the, at a minimum. And in Cone, you can see it really, you know, festered and became ultimately, I think we can say that stuff is really dangerous. And yet you say it, it, it he was trying to solve a problem in his life and understand why the world was the way it was. He got the wrong solution. Definitely. And yet you understand why he arrived at that solution. Um, that I, said, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I just think that context is really important because I don't want us, even though the, some of the things that Cohn says are fairly difficult for us to process and even understand, I don't want us to fall into, you know, a place of, you know, not understanding his project and yeah. really trying to look at him in the most sympathetic way possible because we want to represent his ideas accurately and what prompted him. And there were very real struggles in growing up. We have Mel, she, uh, he or she's saying um, Cohen was in Arkansas, born in 1938. Mel is coming through for I us know, tonight. I know, died Thank in, in uh, 2018. So, you know, there was a, a probably formidable challenges that James mm -hmm. Cohn faced in his life that that prompted him to go down this path and as a theologian um you know i think it's important to put him in his historical context and i don't think that his solutions were biblical and as his life went on his his solutions became uh more and more distanced from historic christianity that's for sure but he is a, a very important voice in the conversation that people need to kind of grapple with and understand his, his long uh, influence. So go ahead, Neil, I cut you off. I was just going to say, I, I agree with that. We want to, we want to, I think being accurate and being sympathetic are sort of different things. I think we can be accurate first, definitely. And we can sympathize with, you know, why he felt the way he did. I don't think we should sympathize with his actual heresy. Because right. Dangerous. Yeah. It's it, we can sympathize with, with the man, with his situation. Yes, yes. But with his ideas, those are poison. They will kill the church. And and so we have to be very clear. This is not someone we should go to for understanding race. It is just not. If you want to understand, you know, the you know, slavery or Jim Crow or history or there are other people who are so much going to give you again the gory details the horrors of racism and slavery that will not bring in the sort of outright rank heresy that Kuhn does and so you know maybe read them yeah um <laughs> what do you think is the impact that James Cohn and I'm asking either one of you to respond to this that James Cone has on the church today, do you see his voice as growing in influence, um, even in evangelical churches? I mean, when I was in seminary 30 years ago, 
we didn't learn about James Cone. That was just sort of an other, like that wasn't a, a voice that we were interacting with. But I think that he's a lot more known now. I'm just wondering what you think um, his legacy is becoming even among evangelicals. Go ahead, and then I'll, I'll chime in. Well, we saw Jamar Tisby explicitly say that if we want to have a reformation of our views on race, we should be reading people like James Cone. So uh, <laughs> that's kind of clear. I've had people tell me that, oh, nobody reads James Cone. No, and I'm like, well, Tisby just said we, we should be reading him and guys like him. So that's, that's one thing. Um, but I, what I would say is that I think that Cone may not be that influential. I just don't know. Uh, in the same way, critical race theorists like, say, Derek Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw, Elgato, they may not be influential directly, but their ideas are influential. Mm-hmm. So when people, because people often say, oh, you're accusing me of you know, doing CRT. I don't even know what CRT is. I even read a single CRT book. I don't know who James Cone is. Who's James Cone? That might be totally true, but the ideas are saturating our culture and there's our, our ways of thinking about race. And so that's why I always emphasize don't just slap the CRT label on it and say, oh, CRT is bad. Because they'll tell you, honestly, I've never even read that stuff. You have to go for the ideas and say, look, this idea, I don't care where you got this, whether you got it from James Cone or your knitting club, it's still a wrong idea. It's a false idea. And let me show you the, uh, a better way to think about things like race and justice. I would say, uh, yeah, like, I'm a co-sign on all that. Um and I think that Cone also um, in like today in our current conversation um, and, you know, from when when he started, I think, continues to lead into this conversation of two different Jesuses almost like there's a black Jesus and there's a white Jesus that it, it continues to lend into um, into the division, the the idea of like the black ecclesial like interpretation and um just just what the black tradition is and um like black radical thought within christianity i think some of those things get highlighted and then um perpetuated or um like the the ideas themselves begin to like you would say, Krista, like come out of the lab and now they're just in mainstream society. Well, I think that these things have been around for a very long time. I think Cone's um, thoughts have been in the black church for a very long time and they've just been adopted as the black church thought. And I'm not saying all of his thoughts have, but a lot of his ideas or all black churches. Yeah, or all black churches. But I do think a lot of his ideas have been kind of just adopted or morphed in. In the and, vernacular, mm-hmm. in our language. Yes. And so now what we're seeing kind of in a lot of more popular black churches among more popular black preachers is a lot of the rhetoric and ideas that came from from Cone way back when, even though they weren't alive when Cone was originally writing. So uh, we're going to wrap up here, Neil. We'll, Neil, we're a little over time, but uh, there are several people on YouTube that are very concerned about how you are pronouncing James Cone's name. 
<laughs> so we want to make sure that you know his name is James Cohn. I said James Cohn, didn't I? I don't know. They were thinking you kept saying James Coon. And that was a little oh, awkward. James Cohn. 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 C-O-N-E. No, I said yeah, that's right. Yes. Sorry, I'm, just, I'm not coming through, I guess, in the mic. That's oh, all right. It's Cohn. It's Cohn. We got you. We, we okay. got you. We got you. We know that you know what it is. Yes. But there are several comments. I haven't okay. seen these comments, oh, so yeah, now I'll go back through. I need to enunciate better. They're concerned. <laughs> so thank you, Neil. This has been really helpful. I think that you've helped us talk about some themes that we haven't touched on on the show before. So it's been super helpful and educational. Um, any last words for us about, you know, again, um, anything on cone or anything that you, you didn't get a chance to say um, just re- related to the books or anything like that. One thing I wanted, I didn't get to finish my, uh, the Jesus and John Wayne thing, but it actually ties into all these books is that the way that Dumay approaches the issue of gender and really everything. She actually on Twitter, she admitted that she's doing a project of deconstruction uh, that's, that's uh, really draws on Foucault's work. And uh, she didn't elaborate very much. I kind of have to extrapolate from what her book says. But the idea is that you look behind the truth claims to see how they function to preserve power and privilege. So in her case, she'll look behind statements like, we care about inerrancy. Bible's inerrant. Well, the Baptists claim they care about inerrancy, but really they care about preserving male power. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, so that is a, so that is informing the way that she's thinking about gender, but not just gender. Then she ties it into things like sexuality, the atonement, existence of hell. Those doctrines, she sees all of those as functioning to shore up white male power in the church. Now, that's a very dangerous way to think about truth, because, again, she never deals with scripture. And you never have to ask, well, what does scripture say? It's always about seeing through people's claims to the real reason they promote inerrancy or traditional marriage or whatever. Well, actually, I'd argue that that idea kind of goes back to Marx, (laughs) Hmm. who said that essentially truth claims are just the overflow of essentially the uh, the bourgeois proletariat relationship that that the power dynamics of the society's relationships produce certain ideas, and and then you see the same thing happening uh, when you look at things like racial justice issues. When someone says, "Well, I think that's the wrong approach to racial justice," and the response you often get is, "That's because you're trying to preserve your white privilege." Mm-hmm. So the interesting thing is all these three topics, you have either racial justice, you have complementarianism, and you have the black liberation theology of James Cone. Underneath them is an idea that kind of goes back to Marx that we can see through or underneath these truth claims that really amount to ways to preserve power. It's a little more complicated than that. but And I just want in, to insist to readers that or listeners, that's so deadly. Uh, C.S. Lewis said it, you can't see through everything. You know, you can't, you, you, you can't see through everyone's motives because you're left deconstructing absolutely everything. There's no bottom to that hole. It's a universal acid. It will dissolve all your theology. And when you're seeing these deconstruction stories where they leave Christianity totally, they basically went through every single doctrine and saw through it. So I'm just cautioning you. You might like to deconstruct just race or just gender or, or just something else, but it will 
take you really far down the rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. So just be careful. Well, I don't know, be careful. Reject that way of thinking. Look at what scripture says and and don't try to see through people's, you know, ulterior motives. That's such a good word. It 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 that it can be part of the conversation at times of, well, this is the real reason that you hold this position mm-hmm. or this is the real reason you're just trying to hold on to your white privilege or it seems to me we've we had a few conversations to that effect in the in the past. I got tired of you accusing me of trying to hold on to my white privilege. <laughs> We had to settle it once and for all. <laughs> That's right. Now you're just white adjacent. Basically. That's right. <laughs> but um, this has been really helpful, Neil. Once again, I want to recommend everybody follow Dr. Neil Shenvey if you're on Twitter. He's also on Facebook and reposts some of his content there. Yes. Check out his reviews on his website. He has a lot of helpful articles. And um, just thank you so much, Neil, for all that you do. And um being a friend of the ministry and, and uh, we are definitely indebted to your work. So thank you so much for what you've done. My pleasure, ladies. Have a good night. Thanks. Good night. All right. That was, I think the up there with like the Pat Sawyer episode. Pat Sawyer's my uncle, Dr. Pat was a little bit longer, but yeah, yeah, but I mean, it's just so informative. Like the way that they think I'm like, my goodness, your brain just goes. I'm like, my brain, my brain, you don't, you don't quite do that. (laughs) No, Neil is just an amazing resource. And cause it's, it's more than the book reviews. It's, it's, he's not just reviewing a book. He just has insights into the book. And Mm -hmm. that's really what makes it so valuable. So, Thank you, everyone, for tuning in, and we will see you next week with a very special back-to-school episode with our friend David Schmoos from the Christian Educators Association International, International, which is a group that helps support people, teachers, administrators who work in public education but are Christians. Many of them are facing a lot of hard times. David Schmoos is going to come on the show. So make sure to tell a friend about the show who works in Christian education or is a Christian working in public education. Hopefully this will be an encouraging show for them. Thanks so much for watching. Bye. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.